Let's use my sweet. Well, I can see the nations gathered before me. I said to God, just give me one word for the church, not to preach, just to say over you. And he showed me a budding vineyard. So I won't speak into that. That's just the prophetic word about what he wants to do with his church. And out of that, I want to do this. If you have a heritage from another nation, I'd just like you to stand. This is awesome. I'm going to walk past, and I just want you to tell me what, what nation it is, and I'll, I'll go around. Cause I... Did I get everybody? You can take your seats again. Just give each other a clap. Now, that is the most, this is the most multicultural church I've ever been in. There's only one that rivals you, and it's an Aboriginal church at Tweed Heads. Willie Dumas is the pastor, and he started it just for Aboriginal people, but because it's for our first people and they're respected there, there's 17 different nations, but I think we broke the record. Wow. I'm just amazed. My son's married a Malaysian. We plant a church in Sri Lanka next week, so I've got a few connections there. And I wanted to go to Africa, and I was about to go and buy the tickets, and God said, no, I want you to go and to Sri Lanka this year on a missions trip. I went to Sri Lanka. I was unmarried, and I'd been chasing my wife for seven years, and she kept saying, no, you haven't got your act together. And we broke up for two years. So I started putting God first, and part of it was to go where he sends me, not where I choose to go. And I said, God, I want to go to Africa. What do you say? Thinking he'd say, good on you. Now, he's got nothing against Africa. He loves Africa. But he sent me to Sri Lanka, and I went to Sri Lanka on a missions trip. My wife went to Sri Lanka on a missions trip because he'd said the same thing to her. And when we arrived in Sri Lanka... We were on a team of 12. They divided the 12 into groups of three and they put her and I on the same group. And she was really bummed out and I was really excited. And the Holy Spirit said to me, don't touch it, don't ask her, can you get back together? She just needs to see you putting me first for the three weeks of the trip. I put God first, it was hard. (laughs) And we were engaged two weeks later and we've been married for over 30 years. Wow. Um, thanks to Paula and the team. Uh, Darren and Bronwyn preached in our church last week. They're an amazing couple. Roz, my wife's on the state executive with them. And Roz and I kind of are in charge of pastoral care for all the senior pastors in the state. So we're gradually getting to know Darren and Bronnie better and better. And they're just an amazing couple. Just we're, we're blown away by them. We really like it. Now, Rachel, is it you did the offering? You said this thing. Um, you said... Uh, don't just put in what he told you to put in before. What's he saying now? And when I was in my room at the motel, I asked God, he said, $20. And I had it in my pocket, and you said what you said. So that's the other $30. Now, I just told, if he told me to give it to you, but that's a sign of your fruitfulness because you obeyed what God said to you. That's an unusual thing to say in an offering, but that was, anyway. So you can do with that whatever you like. I release it to you. <laughs> Just wanted to catch up with what the Holy Spirit's saying. A, buddy, a budding vineyard. Wow. Wow, what a church. Anyway, I'm just here to encourage you. I just want to speak a little bit about hope. It's not so much 
teaching. It's just I want to take you to the window and look at life a little bit in, in terms of hope. Um, just so you've got a little bit of an idea who I am and what's sharing with you. Um, my dad was brought up in outback Queensland. My mum was brought up in inner city Sydney. So we had this kind of weird two sides to our family. Um, but, I, you know, I was very tough and I used to love contact sport and being a little bit violent on the field. Um, I went to teacher's college at 24 years of age and I met my wife, Roz, there. Her dad was the forestry commissioner for New South Wales. They lived in Sydney with a tennis court and a swimming pool and an expensive area on four blocks of land. Anyway, we started going out and the first Christmas, we're not Christians... The first Christmas I went to her house, I thought I'd better be generous because they're pretty wealthy. So instead of just taking a six-pack of beer on Christmas Day, I thought I'll take a whole slab. I'll take two dozen. I didn't know that no one in their history of their family had ever touched a drink of alcohol. So I walk in and go, Merry Christmas, everyone. Who wants a beer? And you could have heard a pin drop. (laughs) So Roz's family and my family were like just two ends of the scale. And so we've had this unusual relationship where God wanted us together. My strength is to be feet on the ground, no bulldust in the relationship or in our ministry. And hers has been a class and a love of people and an understanding of life that I didn't have a clue about that has kind of re-educated me. So God's pulled that together I was a, we were both school teachers in primary school, but then uh, we started going to a church just after we got saved. A friend of ours was killed and we heard the gospel at the funeral for the first time. We became Christians. We finished teachers' college, taught for six years, and then our pastor, Kevin Brett, on the Central Coast, and Duncan was in our youth group on the Central Coast. And he's got a friend here from the Northern Territory, Daniel. Is it Daniel? So good to have you here, Daniel, from the Northern Territory. Um, Called us to a church in Newcastle. There was about 800 in our church on the Central Coast. And Brian Houston had been state president of the the AAG, it was at the time, for one week. And the pastor was stood down from this church of 20 in Newcastle. It had years of trouble, massive debt, and God called us there. (laughs) And we hated it for two years. The first time I preached, I came back to my seat. Ros was crying. I said, did I preach that well? She said, no, you preached shocking. I hate this place. (laughs) And it was like, it was just tough, you know. We had 20 to start with. 10 said, we don't like you too, so if you come, we're leaving. And they left. And the other 10 said, we like you. If you come, we're staying. And I said, well, it makes no difference to me. I'm just going to do what God, God said. And we did that now. It took a while, it took a couple of years, but then the church started to grow. It grew to 60 and it felt good. It grew to 150 and I thought, that's about my level. I'm comfortable with that. You know, everyone in the church, we can all be friends. We used to help everyone move house and do all that. But then we grew to 300 and I'd come back from holidays and the church would grow and I'd think, oh no, the church has grown because I hated responsibility. But God does those works in you. Have you noticed that no matter what you go through, the kingdom just moves on? At 300, he told me to send out my number two guy, Bruce Robinson, who was a fantastic guy to take another church. And it was a real battle, so we let him go. The church grew from 300 to 600. Then he told us to start church planning. We've now sent out 17 senior pastors, 
Eight of those started churches from scratch. Three have come back, you know, burnout or different things. So we've done that journey. And the more we planted, the more the church grew. The more we gave away, and it was always our best. Our staff came to me and said, can you stop sending out our number two pastors to plant churches? I said, okay. So we started sending out our number three or four. But we would always suffer for a while and God would prune back. But the church kept growing. It's about a 1,000 now, 17 senior pastors, and Ros helps govern in the state. Now, this is, I'm only telling you, I'm not telling you to boast. I'm telling you because this happened to two people who were at teacher's college and our number one goal in life was to avoid responsibility. This is not a couple that God goes, gee, they got their act together. I really better use them. This is knock them off their horse because they're headed for prison. And if they can do it, anybody can do it. This is that kind of thing. And just by being in the one place for 30 years and being consistent, the church has grown. Have we ever had an idea that helped grow the church? No, not really. But as we've listened... And obeyed, and God's brought in better people than we are beside us to help us, and we've learnt to listen to them. The church just bit by bit, day by day, starts growing. Now, it sounds like a sensational story, but it's not. If I took all the good bits of your life and put it into one sermon, people would go, Wow, that's the most amazing person I've ever met. That's actually what happens in the Bible. The Gospels are condensed, all the, all the stuff gets condensed down, so you think every day we're just. Incredible. Well, they had boring days too. They had low moments. And funnily enough, the most radical thing I want to say to you this morning is we all have a need of dark places. That sounds like heresy, but when I explain it, you'll see that God uses those things. So let's just, let's just talk a little bit about hope. Hope is one of the three greatest forces in human existence. It's the confident expectation that goodness is coming. Faith is learnt in trials, therefore hope is needed to sustain us. Now, here's the big key in hope. Hope is in a person, not a circumstance. Faith is not necessarily the belief in a specific outcome. Faith is the belief that I will emerge victorious regardless of the outcome. That's why some of the great teachers I've heard say, it's not always what happens to you in life, it's what happens in you in the midst of all the rubbish you're going through. It's kind of interesting. It's like when Paul, remember he asked to have the thorn in the flesh removed and goes, nah. But whenever God's answer is no to changing the circumstance, especially, and he, he does change circumstances, but it takes more time than we want it to. But this is what he does. He comes in to the circumstance with you. That's the most important part, learning to walk with him in it. And that's how he'll eventually lead you out of it. Um, I was tested on this uh, last year. My wife was coming home from a state exec meeting late at night and she has to drive back to Newcastle on the freeway. It's pretty boring. So we both get sleepy because we're getting old now. I'm 65 and she's 59. So we talk on the phone and help keep each other awake. In the car, and that way you download all the rubbish. So when she gets home, we can actually treat each other like a husband and wife, and we're not talking church all the time. So we're chatting on the phone, and I hear skidding, smash, ah! Silence. 
Now, two years before that, um, one of the girls in our youth group, her mum was killed in a car accident just like that. So in that silence, after this massive... I think she's probably dead, but I don't know. And I'm sort of looking to God, like, what do you tell me? Is she all right? Do I have to adjust? Do I need to get down there? What do I do? So in the silence, I quickly got up and got changed, ready to go. And then Roz rang back on the phone and said, everything's okay. Everything's okay. A guy's fallen asleep and run into me. Da-da-da-da-da. Cops, ambulance on their way. Everything's fine. So we got out of that fine. But they're scary moments, aren't they? An old guy in our church that I love, he's in his 90s. He said this to me and it really shocked me. I'm still digesting it two years later. I think it's true, but I'm not 100% sure. But it's really helped me. He said, there's something you need to know, Mark, when you go through things like that. Your hope should never be in anything you can lose. So I'd like to teach on that, but I don't know enough to teach on it other than it challenged me on, okay, so my hope is in having a wife or a family or a house or land, but they're all things my hope is in, whereas you've got to keep drawing, you've got to lead ourselves, haven't we? have got to draw ourselves back to my hope's in Christ. If my wife lives, my hope's in Christ. If my wife dies, my hope's in Christ. So I just say it. It's radical, but there's truth in it for you to grab a hold of. Um, so the script, two of the scriptures I wanted to look at, you'll, you'll know them quite well. The first one's in Job thirteen fifteen. Job stating his case before God, but he says this, like he really is going, here's my case. And I have, there's a good book called about the, the courts of God or something. And it talks about how stating a case before God's important. But anyway, I'm not preaching on that. But he says this after kind of telling God his stuff. He says this statement, and it's stunning. He says, I think it's the most powerful faith statement in the Bible. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to face. So even if he kills me. So that statement takes us to a very similar statement in Daniel 13 verses 16 to 18, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego about to be thrown into the fire. They replied to King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God you'd set up. Interesting, you know, most martyrs in history, and the, and the guy who's just going to Sri Lanka, his dad was martyred there, machine gun, while he was sharing the gospel in a war zone. And he's gone back to plant a church in the country his father was murdered in. Sounds nice, but... When he's four years old and his dad's murdered and he vows to himself, I will never go back to that nation. You can understand some of the journey he's been through in God to be able to take his family there and do that. Um, The early Christians were not killed for believing in Christ. They were killed for not bowing down to foreign idols. Quite a challenge to us today with the way the world's going. 
So we're faced with the same challenge a bit. But then again, we see this thing. He will deliver us, but even if he doesn't. Now, when you're praying for miracles and healing with loved ones and friends, that still has to be your attitude. Our God will do something here, but even if he doesn't, we're still going to follow him. I've lost family members to cancer, quite a few. We've prayed for the healing after being told they have days to live. They've had six months extra. We've had extra family time, special times, and then they've gone. And it's even if he doesn't. I've had people in my church with family members that had cancer they're believing for healing. And while some pretty special things happened, some of them would not let anyone say anything negative or talk about them dying. And what happened was this. Nothing was talked about. A young husband didn't get to write a letter to his kids that they could read for the rest of their life about how much he loved them. The family's finances weren't able to be put in order to make it easy for the wife after the husband had gone because they weren't prepared to face maybe God's taken them home. He's God. He has the choice. The enemy doesn't choose. God does. Appointed unto man to die once. It's not in the hands of the devil. It's in the hands of God. And that's sometimes hard to accept. But I had one lady had a baby born without kidneys and they said, uh, your baby will live for five days and then it'll die. So they fasted and prayed. The baby died. I went to the hospital. She's got the child in her arms and they go, Mark, we killed our baby. I said, why do you think you killed your baby? Because we didn't have the, the faith. I said, no, that's not right. As hard as it is to accept, I believe God's chosen to take this young one home. At his funeral, scores of people became Christians. Now, that doesn't justify the death of a child, but it certainly put some hope back into them. God was able to use it for his glory. I, I, I don't know where they're at now because they, they live somewhere else, but we just have to be careful, and I think those two scriptures can really protect us in the tough situations. It's really... listen. Mum and sister with cancer, I pray for healing. I'm like anyone else. Help, you know, like I want that so badly. But you still got to guard your own heart with your attitude while you're going through those things. Okay, what I said about needing, needing the dark places. I've learnt this. This is a, this, listen to this truth. This is brilliant. As long as a seed is in the light, it cannot germinate. And this is what I've found for someone who's done a lot of church planting. Sometimes when you're in a tough situation, it feels like you're buried in the dark and you don't know where God is. But I found that the truth is, because he never leaves us nor forsakes us, then the truth is this. When it feels like that, he's actually planted you. Something, his intention is that something will germinate out of that dark place and then life and fruitfulness come. Now, let me just prove it to you. This is the reason why... For many people around our nation with ministries, and I'd say in your church as well, their strength in ministry usually is the trial that they've been through. God just seems to give us an understanding and ability to minister in the area of our affliction. But this is what you have to understand. (laughs) So you know there's a scripture that says about how Jesus still has the scars in heaven? And remember he walked into the room and showed them his scars and Thomas kind of repented and all that. So while the scar's still bleeding, while the wound is still 
weeping and went, that's not the time to minister to others. That's the time to get counsel and help and have a break and get some rest and let yourself recover. But when you've recovered and there's scars, then you're ready to minister. And there's the evidence, you know. Let's move on. Your trial is not your final destination. I find with me, I don't know about you, the number one lie the enemy tries to take me out with is when it's tough and I'm not quite coping, he just always shows up and goes, it's always going to be like this. And you start to get that panic and that overwhelmed feeling of, if it's always like this, I can't cope. But it's such a lie that that's how he defeats you. And that's where you've got to get into the word and, and, and find the, the, the right answers. Um, I, I'll, I'll just share this because I haven't got he- heaps to go. Um, there's a guy named Richard Wagamese. So I was in Canada or Alaska last year. And I like when I travel like that on a break. Um, you know, you're traveling in the wilderness. And I like to buy a book by an author who lived there and wrote it there. So I'm reading the stuff of the location where I'm at. And there's this great Canadian author who's an indigenous Canadian named Richard Wagamese. And he you know, it was taken from his parents. And you know, anyway, when he went to school, everyone thought he was dumb. But all, and I understand this as a teacher. All he had was a bad eyesight problem. So they'd sit him up near the back and keep him out of the way. And everyone just thought he was stupid. And how he learnt was he'd have to, to pass any test, he'd have to look over his shoulder. There was a smart girl sat behind him and he looked over his shoulder and he'd copy like this. One day they had this beautiful teacher comes in and she picked him for something and she goes, Richard, could you come up and write your name on the blackboard for me? There were still blackboards back then. <laughs> he gets the chalk. His face is right up against it like this. So immediately she goes, he's got an eyesight problem. Smart teacher. We'll get that checked out. And he writes his name and his name is upside down and back to front. So she helps him and she discovers he writes all his stuff upside down and back to front because this is how he learnt to write. And she gets his eyes tested, he gets glasses, now he can see. Now he's one of the most famous authors in the nation because one kind person took the time to figure out what it was and just get that little bit of help, all that was needed. I love that. You can do this for the nations, just with the people that are sitting here. Okay, I won't even preach on this. Insecurity does rob you of hope. Self-doubt is the voice of insecurity. And my wife and I come from that background of having terrible self-esteem. That's why we avoided responsibility, because out of fear, we thought we would screw up and we didn't want to screw it up for anyone else, so we stayed out of responsibility. Whoa. But God just kept piling it on. The church kept growing. Why I'm a pastor, I haven't got a clue. Because I'd come back from holidays and think, oh my God, the church is bigger. <laughs> I should have been stoned for that. But anyway, God in his graciousness seems to cope with that in me. I don't know how or why. I probably <laughs> I should be struck by lightning by now. Anyway, if you hear over here, oh, I hear about Mark's head, I got hit by lightning, you think, God's had enough. <laughs> um Here's something I've learnt along the way about my insecurity. 
you must develop the ability to hear a contrary point of view and respond appropriately without prejudice. If you want a scripture for it, Proverbs 18.2, fools have no interest in understanding. They only want to air their own opinions. I found that hard. (laughs) When you're a pastor, you're excited about the vision and someone on the board goes, yeah, but there should be four steps to that, not one. That's actually really helpful stuff. You've got to listen and slow down. I I, I, I won't teach on it, but that's an important point for all of us. Um, I'm going to go into a good story and then I'm going to finish. Um, My daughter Ellie, my my youngest, my eldest daughter works in politics. My son is a school teacher and my eldest one's doing Bible college. She tried doing musical theatre, genius, creative person. Ended up with bulimia because of the body shape thing and all the pressure that's put on if you're going to be a dancer and seeing the body shape. Anyway, it took us six years but she's, she's through it now and she helps others come through bulimia. But she's in C3 Bible College and um, at the end of last year, she got together with some of the students she likes and they were looking for a house. You know, Northern Beaches in Sydney, super expensive, so they get a whole lot. So Ellie's looking, they can't find anything. And this girl from Kong He's Church in Singapore has got a real faith gift. And she says, why are you looking out in the suburbs in all those crappy, broken down houses? I believe God's going to give us a house on the beach. And Ellie tells me, and I go, well, that won't happen. (laughs) They haven't got enough money. And Ellie goes, I agree, Dad. Get ready to put up that photo. Two weeks later, she sends me this photo. This is her bedroom. (laughs) So we had an interesting talk about our blind spots. And (laughs) the fact that what we learned was... It's really good in your group of friends to have someone with a gift of faith. (laughs) I'm the pastor and I'm, you know, like doubting Thomas and the student pulls this off. Wow. Anyway, don't forget that, will you? I just wanted to give you evidence. (laughs) Every time I walk, every time I visit her, I feel so convicted going up the stairs. It's like... Oh, I go, Els, you didn't tell them what I said, did you? <laughs> okay, I just want to tell you this about blind spots because we find with married couples, including us, you know how you get married and you think um, my side of the family is the normal one, their side of the family is the screwed up one. They should be more like us. But then your partner's actually really good at telling you you have blind spots and even though it's hard to believe, we actually have. They're, that was one of mine. So watch this on blind spots. This is a true story. There was a German shepherd dog that was pregnant that was hit by a car. She still had the puppies about a week later, but her back legs were badly injured and they were getting fixed up, but she couldn't walk on them for ages. So she had the puppies and she used to drag herself around with her front legs until she could walk again. During that time, as the puppies began to walk, they all dragged themselves around without using their back legs. And the owner was really worried, piled them all into the wagon, took them to the vet, and the vet checked everything out. And after a while, it took him a while to figure it out. And he said, I know what's happened. They've just never seen a dog walk using its back legs. And after a while, they all, they all came good because mum was walking again and they all started to get it. 
That is such an analogy of life. In the family we were brought up in, because everyone falls short of the glory of God. I'm not paying out on anyone's family, but we've all got stuff we were brought up with that we think's normal. But when we're living with someone, it's like, okay, that's not normal. <laughs> I was showing the church the other day. I put up a picture of my wife. My wife and I have to have separate toothpaste and brush because she leaves the lid open on the toothpaste. And it's just... So I, I show the church this picture and they're going, oh, that's... The... All the melancholics are going, that's disgusting. It looks horrible. But then I showed them a picture of my side of the bed. All the clothes from sport yesterday, the gym clothes piled on top of that, the Sunday clothes on top of that, the newspapers on top of that. So I so I'm showing you well it works. I'm showing you this is the log and the speck. So the thing that I'm annoyed about is this big. Just some stuff coming out of the toothpaste thing. Took four steps, there's the log. So I don't know if you're ready to hear this, but I'm learning in my 60s. Every time we judge someone harshly, there's actually usually a log in our own eye. Now, I'll tell you how to work with it first. This will help you. When someone judges you harshly, you almost know that nearly always there's a log in their own eye, and sometimes it's quite easy to point that out. So if you want to get them back, that'll help you feel better. It's no good for the relationship, but it'll help you feel better. But the idea in using that scripture is, it's like when someone preaches and you think, oh, gee, I wish my friend was here to hear this. It's you. It's for you. And the idea is when we judge someone harshly, we apply that to ourselves and we think, gee, I need to get the log out of my own eye. So that can help us in that. Let's, let, let's finish this morning. I'll, I'll just read this to you to finish with. Uh, This was an email I got two years ago from a girl named Anna that I used to teach a long, long time before in primary school. Um, She just sent it to the church and said, I hope this finds marks there. She says, life for me has been rocky to say the least and just recently, only weeks ago, I've gone through one of the darkest moments in my life. We have been homeless and my sons are very broken to the extent of suicidal thoughts and actions. One night alone in my car, I decided I'd actually had enough of all the pain and hurt. I didn't want to live anymore, and it was too hard. It hurt way too much. Even breathing felt an effort. And in a moment, I will never forget, I cried out to God for the last time, help me and show me something. I said, please help me remember something. And in brackets, I have an acquired brain injury due to domestic violence, and I have memory problems. God spoke to me so clearly, and I remembered a psalm, 125 verse 1, a song that you taught us in year 3. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which shall never be removed, but shall remain forever. I sat in the car, I sang that song, and I cried and cried. God spoke to me that night and reminded me he is stronger and I can trust in him no matter what. I chose to keep living that night and not kill myself as I had planned. Now I am leaning on God. Things are still hard, but I don't feel alone anymore as God is with me. Sorry for rambling on so much, but I felt I wanted to thank you for planting that seed in my heart when I was eight. I am now 42 years old. 
You taught me back then that Jesus is real and he cares about me. I just wanted to encourage you that even the seemingly small things can turn out to be big ones. I share the story, number one, because you need to know that nothing is ever wasted in God. Because sometimes you think you've been faithful and it's not fruitful. But a seed can lie dormant. God watches over his word to perform it, it says, doesn't it? 8.42. Wow. Same with you. When, When you go through those difficult times and you're faithful, it's amazing what's been sown that can bear fruit. Um. And I just wanted you to know without a doubt that God loves spending time with you. He knows we have weaknesses. People think, because I did that wrong, God's angry and I shouldn't pray and he won't talk to me. And the craziest reasons keep them away from God. Whereas God's specialty is we go, God, I fall short. He goes, thank you. That's truth. I know that. I love you. And you know why I know that he likes spending time with you even though you fall short? Because years ago, before my sister and mum died, we had a big family picnic in the Waddigan Mountains on the central coast, and it started to rain, and I built a shelter. And I'm just the worst shelter builder. An old tarp with holes in it, and anyway, it was falling down, and branches were falling on it. No one would sit under it except me. And I loved it. Why did I love it? I made it! Well, God created you. And while he didn't create you with faults, he created you and he knows you fall short. And he wants to be with you in the shelter he's given, except his shelter's perfect. He just loves spending time with you. And when you go to spend time with you, he doesn't condemn you. I'm a dad. I'm a good dad. My kids want to spend time with me. I don't start bringing up, how come you didn't visit me last week? Like, yeah. That just drives them away. It's like, wow, thank you. It doesn't matter if it's 80 years, you know. Thanks. I love spending time with you. And that's how God is with you. Let me just pray for you this morning. Father, we thank you, man, for the nations represented in this church. We thank you for the potential of the vine to bud and bear fruit. We ask you for the right leader coming forward. We pray you blessing on Darren and Bronwyn and the leaders in this church we thank you for the faithfulness of the people we thank you Lord I've just noticed how humble this place is this humbleness has arisen in this place I pray you'd mould that into something under the right leader who's humble Father we thank you we declare your blessing and protection on each individual and on this church in Jesus name Amen